0: But we are going to be in Mark chapter 5, so we are starting a new series, but not really starting a new series. I just changed it up to make you think we were doing something different, but we're not doing anything different. We're going to be in Mark still. So, chapter 5, I just wanted a new graphic on the screen. Mark chapter 5, in which we're going to talk about a guy who is possessed by a demon, so fun times. This is the wobbliest stand ever. Let's see if we have another one. Ooh, hold on. Let me use this thing. Looks super official. Sorry, that is going to be super distracting. Look at this. So, okay, sorry. Just trying to be as distracting as possible here is what I'm trying to do. Okay, so now, do you think a demon possessed that? All right, anyways, okay, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 this morning, but before we get there, I want to tell you about a friend that we took with us to the beach uh, this past summer. So we borrowed a tarp from some friends who live out in the country. We went and visited friends down in Angleton, which is south of Houston, and uh, which is where we used to live, which is about 20 minutes-ish from the Gulf, and so we had a beach town that we always went to down there called Surfside. And so we had some friends down there who lived outside of town, and they had a tarp in their garage that they let us borrow to take out to the beach so we could lay that down and put our our boy's stuff down on it let the boys kind of roll around. Uh, But when we're getting the tarp out of the van, uh, Dara's getting it out, and she finds a giant roach on it. She starts flipping out, okay? So for Dara, roaches are like the worst thing in the world. And so we get it, and we're kind of looking at it, and so I take it and I flick it off onto the, onto the ground. It's really cool. If you've ever taken a roach <laughs> to the beach with you and just put them out there in the direct sunlight, it's really fascinating to watch what they do. So, uh, so there's nowhere, like they can't dig very well. And so, uh, or at least this one couldn't. I don't know if he was inept or not. But so he was just out there in the direct sunlight in the, in the beach with nowhere to hide. And so you just see him sprinting everywhere, just trying to find anywhere to hide. And so he sees our car and gets under, tries to get under the tire, but he can't find a spot to like really hide. And so you just see him doing laps around all four tires, trying to stay in the shade while finding a spot to hide. And all of a sudden, these seagulls catch wind of this. It's pretty fun. So these seagulls are here, just kind of watching this thing and trying to watch. And so they're kind of—you see a couple of them kind of wobble up, and and so you see this this roach going from tire to tire with birds coming on all directions for him. And all of a sudden he darts and tries to run somewhere else, and then a bird catches him and flies off with him. It was really interesting. All that to say, this there's sometimes you have visitors you don't expect. Okay, that's that's the that's, You catch that tie-in? Did you catch that? Did you catch that? That is Seminary 101 for you right there. All right, so in Mark chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus and his disciples met a visitor they did not expect. All right, so Mark chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 1 really quickly. It says, they came out to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. Let me explain what that's telling us here. Actually, let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. So, Father, come before you, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word, God, and I pray that you would use it to speak to us, speak to our hearts today, uh, because we are people who need you. Um, so I pray that you would give us today what we need for today, and that we'd be able to live in light of that this week. And so we, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as Paul taught last week, uh, leading up to this, this uh, coming to the other side of the sea in the region of the Gerasenes... They encountered a major storm. And so, and so what's happening here is they're on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. But on the other side, there is a Roman territory. And, uh, and so Jesus says, he just finished uh, teaching, and he said, hey, guys, let's go to the other side of the sea. And for his disciples, you can imagine at that moment, there would have been like a, you sure about that? Because those are the Romans over there. And the Romans were not, like they, the Romans and the Jews were not friends, okay, because the Romans were their overlords, and they levied taxes on them, and, and, uh, and so it wasn't that great. They didn't, they didn't have a really great, strong relationship, and, uh, and so Jesus said, no, let's go over there to their place. Well, en route to their place, all of a sudden, they're on, the, they're on the sea, and this major storm comes in that these professional fishermen get terrified about, and so they're on their way there, and they finally make it through the sea, and they get to the other side. And so in that moment, they're like, maybe God's against this trip in us going to these Romans over here. And then they get to the other side, and this is their welcome wagon. Look at verse 2. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. There's your welcome party to the Roman area. And so for the you can you could think, like for the disciples, they're in this training process of learning what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it learn to lean to look like him? And then he's taking them on this weird journey to where they almost got think they got killed by this storm that came, and then the first thing they meet when they get to these Jew, to the Roman's territory is this dude who's got a demon in him, and he's got like super strong strength, and he lives in the graveyard because no one else wants to be around him. Welcome to guys. Like, that's kind of what's happening. But I want you to see something here, because, because what is going to happen here is Jesus is going to explain for us, or what we're going to see is, is through his reaction or his action with Jesus, we're going to see what this guy's deepest problem was and how Jesus was able to meet it. That's what I want you to see here. And so look at his problem verse 2 again. Look at his verse, his problem. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. And so the unclean spirit, that's a demon. But I want you to see this. The point here is that a man came out to Jesus, not a demon, not an embodied demon. The the point of this story is about this guy and what's happening in his life, not about some demon or something else they were the man is just a shell for this guy. So like in 1997, if you the Men in Black came out, okay? So if you're unfamiliar, let me explain it real quick. It's Tommy Lee Jones, Will Farrell, I mean Will Farrell, Will Smith. It's not Will Farrell. It's Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Basically, they were special agents for a secret government organization that regulated alien life on Earth. And, uh, and so there were aliens all around us, but you just never knew it because they were highly regulated. But they were supposed to monitor and protect us from the really evil aliens. And uh, then one came, because that's, you know, you wouldn't have a movie if one didn't come. And so one came and he killed a farmer named Edgar and took his body or his skin, and that was his, his disguise while being on Earth. And for, for many of us, this is how we kind of envision demons in the Bible, right? As though, as though here's a person, but it's not really a person. It's a demon, and then he just puts on that person's skin, and that person really doesn't have anything to do with anything anymore. It's all about the demon that's there. And that's kind of our picture of, like, demon possession in the Bible, and so by extension, because we don't see that really here in the U.S., like, like we kind of categorize like demons or spiritual warfare or something, as, as, as our, something that's as archaic. Or, and then we, cat, like we categorize it as folklore in our minds. And so we just kind of like push it off. And maybe we won't say that verbatim. But, but really, when we think about demons or spiritual warfare or anything like that, we just kind of push it back and say, that's really not, that it, that's not a thing here, here in the developed Western world. That's kind, of, that's kind of where we're at. But there's important lessons in stories like this for us, because there are forces against you in this world. And it may not look like demon possession that you may perceive it to be or like some movie might, might perceive it to be but they're very much real and present. And so, John Babbler, who's a professor at Southwestern, says this, and I think it's really helpful. He's like, no, it's just a simple way to say it. It's like the world, your flesh, and the devil all conspire together to trip you up. There's something at work in the world outside of you and bigger than you that, that desires you to not follow God. And that's, that's what the case, that's what Mark is telling us here. That's what's happening in this guy's life. And so, just like, just like we said last week, or two, a couple weeks ago, when we saw the seed being thrown out among the different types of soils, and there was one that was sown among the path, and what happened when the, when the seed was, was sown among the path, it was hard, and what happened? The devil came in and took the word that was sown away to where the person that was that soil didn't even have a choice in the matter anymore. But you know what's interesting about that person? is they were still held responsible for their, for their reaction. They were still responsible. And so there's nothing in this text that actually says this guy has no moral agency anymore. There's nothing in this text that says he had no choice in how he reacted. He had no choice in what he did. He had no, like, he had no choice in how he reacted to God or responded to God or responded to what's happening in his life. And so, and so I want us to see this and that there are things at, against us in the world. And so we kind of push back against this a little bit because of a thing called naturalism. So in the Industrial Revolution, kind of, people started gaining kind of more uh, wealth and more of the ability to like, c- kind of create an industrialized society. And it's how we've gotten to our modern Western mindset, really. There's a thing called naturalism that has crept into our mindset. And what that means or what, is, what that is, it is where there is anything that you cannot scientifically measure or see does not exist. That's what naturalism is. And so, uh, and so that is like that kind of contemporary scientific method mindset is it pervades all of us. Like we all think that way because that's, that's, what, like, that's just what's around us. That's our culture. That's our mindset. And so by extension, that – like that is the way we view things like this in the Bible, to where we just think, oh, yeah, that's something that happened, but we don't really see it anymore, so I'm not really going to worry about that, and that was me. That was me, but I'm going to tell you something. Since I've come to Normandale back since March, this is is totally, totally, like, new to me as well, because that was my mindset as well. I would thought, you know, that kind of stuff is real, maybe in some third world country somewhere, but not really here. I don't, we don't see it anymore, but when I came here, in the time period that I've been here for the last seven or so months, however long it's been, my eyes have been opened to spiritual warfare because I've had my, my mind clouded over in weird ways just at different times since coming here. And, like, and I, I can't explain it. And it's like this, this cloud that comes over that like, I can't totally, I can't control. I don't feel like I can control. I can because you can control your thoughts. But I don't feel like it. And I, I've, the, one of the first times it happened, I was talking to Darren. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I, like, I just had this weird, like, cloud that's over me. And Darren's like, have you thought about maybe you're being attacked? And I was like, no, I've never thought that. i never thought about that. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, wait, I think I am. And then that, after we kind of had that realization, it went away. And then a couple weeks later, it came back with another issue. And then I thought about it. I'm like, wait, I think I'm being attacked because I feel the exact same way as that before first time, and then that went away, and then it came back a couple of weeks later in a different mode. And, uh, and so, like, I've had my eyes opened to this actually being a reality for this. And here's the point of what Mark is trying to share with us here, what's happening to this guy, is your mind is not as free as you think it is. That's what, he's, that's, that's what we're going to get at here. Your mind is not as free as you think it is. Why do you think any time you decide to pick up your Bible, you're like, man, I'm going to spend time in God's Word today, all of a sudden you get a text message at that moment or your kid starts crying, or you get the idea, oh, I need to check something on Facebook real quick, or, oh, yeah, what, what were the Cowboys score? I forgot they were playing today. You have these things pop in your mind, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I need to check that real quick, and then after about 10 minutes or 15 minutes of scrolling, and all of a sudden, your time is gone, and now it's time to move on to the next task that you had to do, and that, so you, you, you end up not reading your Bible that day. Or why is it that you have this, this topic or this thing that you dwell on a lot pop into your mind at different times that sucks your joy, and you know that thinking about it or dwelling about it isn't going to help you, but, but, like, but at random moments, it just pops in your mind, the thought pops in your mind about this issue, whatever the thing may be, about your kid, about your work, whatever it is, it pops in your mind, and then all of a sudden it starts this, this train of you just start dwelling again for the rest of the day. Why do you think that happens? yes, part of it is your flesh, but also part of it, there are spiritual forces outside of you that are working to steal your joy and to trip you up and to prevent you from following God. Your mind is not as free as you think it is. And so, since your mind and your environment aren't as free as you believe they are, that's all the more reason we need a man who is free. And so what we're going to learn here, what we're going to see is that Jesus is our anchor in the midst of spiritual battles and clouded minds. And that's what we're going to see here. So look at verse 3. This man, he lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And so look at this guy's reaction. He's, he's being tormented, like in his mind, in his heart, he's being tormented, but he still has moral agency here. And look what's happening within him. Look what's happening within him. He is uncontrollable. He's having his life wrecked. He doesn't know how to respond. And so he just starts like just wanting a t- autonomy. He's uncontrollable. And everyone in his town recognized this guy had a problem. So others did what they believed they thought they, 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 like, would be best. And so they tried to coerce discipline through treatment within him. And so they loaded him with chains. But look at this. No attempt to change his behavior or to discipline him was successful. He resisted every bit of it. Even the most extreme measures of behavioral modification had no effect, and they were fruitless on him. They chained him down, and then he was able to break those apart. He resisted them because he desired his autonomy. He desired his autonomy, and that may, may have been the thing that led to his isolationism. And so he lives in a, People don't typically live in graveyards just, just if they're in their right mind. People don't typically do that. And so this guy, this guy did it possibly as a result to get away from everyone else who was trying to coerce discipline within him, but not actually dealing with with what was in his heart. And so there was a root behavior within him that was not addressed. There was something in him, only his behavior was the thing that was being addressed, but not actually the, the, the main issue that was in him. Look at verse five. And day and night, or night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. Either the attempted treatment of his problem forced him, as part of the treatment, to be cast out among the tombs, or his desire to get away from all the treatment uh, led him to, to live among the tombs. But but look at this. His instead, of like of going out there and feeling peace, his inner turmoil, instead of like being back in the city and kind of creating violent outbursts, it turned against himself. So there's this turmoil, this thing that's in him where he's feeling like he's just being tormented. He's, and he, all of a sudden, he turns everything against himself, and he starts to, starts to have self-torture here. And so the fruit of his heart, or, or the, the heart problem that's being manifested in these ways, um, like, or like the, the, what's actually happening, is the lack of discipline and self-control, emotional distress, isolation... Self-destructive behaviors such as cutting himself and damaging his body. That's what's happening in here. Those are the, like, that's, that's the fruit of what's actually in his heart. That's what he's showing here. And you can attempt to change any one of these behaviors through any behavioral modification, like system, just as the city tried to do. And you can attempt to trade one of these for a less addictive or a less harmful behavior, but no attempt to modify someone's behavior in this way will ever actually do any good because you don't actually address the heart problem. You want to address the heart problem because this man's main problem is not his lack of discipline or his cutting of himself. That's not his main problem. This man's main problem, as Mark shows us in giving us an overall view of what's happening, this man's main problem is the fact that he is a slave to sin and a slave to the devil. That's his main problem. And his response to that proves it in that he is an idolater because he's running towards these other things to find peace instead of the one place where he could actually find it, which is in God. That's what he's doing. So he seeks to be isolated, to be away from other people. He seeks to, to gain control over what his situation, so he starts cutting himself. He's seeking control. He's seeking peace. But that's just revealing his idolatrous heart because he's searching for peace in everywhere other outside of God. The only place he could actually find it. And so how much of this behavior was the man versus how much was the, the result of a being tormented or having a demon in him? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But either way, that wasn't his big issue, biggest issue. His behavior... And whatever is happening is not his biggest problem. And it's not your biggest problem or your kids. It's his heart. Let's look at verse 6. Because what we're going to see here is he finally seeks help in the only man who can. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. And he said this, and this was probably the demon talking because verse 8 Jesus told him, "Come out of the man, you unclean spirit." In verse 9, "What's your name?" Jesus asked him. "My name is Legion," he answered him, "because we are many." And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. So all of a sudden, this guy runs up to Jesus and then Jesus and the demon starts to have a conversation. And the point here, what he says is his name is Legion, and that was basically an army. There could have been a 1,000. We don't know. The number is unimportant. The point is that there was an army at work within this guy, and so the point of what Jesus is trying to make here by asking the guy's name, which is uncommon, he asked the guy's name in order to show that this problem is way bigger than anything you could ever deal with on your own. You need someone who's bigger than this. That's what he's showing him here. But look at this. There's a side note and a quote by a guy named R. Alan Cole um, as to, like, this guy's, the demon's kind of response to Jesus. It's strange that the inside of, of evil into the nature of Jesus should be so clear and instantaneous, while ordinary people were so slow to see his Godhead because the demon said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Such truths, as James tells us, even the most demons believe and shudder, because for them, for them these truths are not merely abstract principles, but forces with which to reckon. The demons knew Jesus at once, for fear as well as love sharpens the eyes. So that was just a side note of, of why, like, why does this demon able to walk up to Jesus and say, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? It's the first time he's meeting him, potentially, I don't know. But in this, the point of what I want you to see is that this demon was not just one demon within this guy. It wasn't just one thing tormenting him. It was a whole army of demons tormenting this guy in his heart. And what what, what Jesus is showing him is that this problem is way bigger than anything you could ever deal with on your own. And the same for you and for me is that the problems of your heart are way bigger than anything you could ever deal with on your own. Just Ephesians 2 says, as you're dead in your sins, in your trespasses, and the ways in which you once walked, following the principality of the, the ruler of the air. But then in verse 4 it says, but God comes and he makes you alive in him. That's both for your salvation, but also in bringing you along in sanctification. God is the one, it's the spirit who brings about godly fruit within you. And so he says, your problem is bigger than you can deal with on your own. And look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. And a large herd of pigs was there. This is, okay, this is a side note. This is totally bizarre and totally awesome, okay? A large herd of pigs was there. Again, we're in Roman territory because Jews had nothing to do with pigs, okay? Feeding on the hillside, and the demons begged him, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Awesome. I don't know what to do with that. Imagine, though, if those are my pigs, I'm pretty hacked off at this point, because that's a lot of money, okay? If you got 2,000 pigs, that is a lot of money that are now dead, okay? So, that's what's… So I wouldn't if, if I didn't know Jesus and he just killed 2,000 of my pigs, I wouldn't be very happy either. Look what they said. The, the men who tended them ran off. They ran into the city. They reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what happened. They're like, this is crazy. Then they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him, that's Jesus, to leave their region. Totally bizarre story, totally, but totally awesome as well, being the one who didn't own the pigs. Okay, so, uh, so he, the demons leave the guy and go into 2,000 pigs, and they rush down a hill into the, into the lake, and they all drown. Great times. Then the men run off, and what do they see when the whole town gets back? This guy who was formerly chained down, and who went and lived among the tombs, and everyone knew there was something off, there was something wrong within him and within his heart, and so that's why the city tried to do things to, to, like, to, to coerce discipline within him. All of a sudden, they get there after this bizarre event happened, and they see this man sitting there in his right mind. What did the pigs serve to show us? They were a visible demonstration that Jesus actually healed this guy. That's what they were. The point of the pigs is to say, Jesus really did this. And so they went out there and they saw the guy in his right mind. Because the the demons were now there, not in him. And so what do we learn from this story of Jesus healing the tormented guy? Like, what do we learn from this is that He has the power to heal even the sickest and most tormented hearts. And so, whatever is happening within you or within your family member or within your mind, whatever is happening, He has the ability and the grace and the, compa- and the compassion to work through it. He has that. It may not be instantaneous, but that doesn't mean he's absent or that he's powerless. Look at, look at what 2 Peter verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God is not leaving you to figure things out on your own. God, through the work of the Spirit, Has equipped you and is equipping you through his word, through his people, for everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's not leaving you on your own. And so if you feel tormented, if you feel clouded in your mind, turn to him. Turn to God. He's not leaving you powerless. He's given us everything in his word that pertains to life and godliness. And so God's not absent. He's supplying for your needs, for he's given us everything through the knowledge of him, which is his word. But the next thing I want you to see, and we'll be done, is is the text takes a a turn here, okay? Look at verse 18. Because it it kind of zooms in. The crowd kind of leaves, and we kind of zoom in on this dude, okay? We don't know his name, uh, but zooms in on him because it says this guy has a conversation with Jesus afterwards. In verse 18, it says, as he was getting into the boat, so Jesus was going to leave, he's going to follow the city's wishes to leave them. So he's getting in the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. But listen to this. He begged Jesus to go with him. He said, please let me go and be a disciple. And Jesus said, uh, Jesus did not let him, verse 19. Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So, he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. So, this is a turn from the previous thing. This is a second point that that Mark is making here for us is that sometimes Jesus, when he works in your life and and you want to follow him, like you want to be a disciple, sometimes he calls you to stay, to remain where you're at. This guy said, I want to follow you. I want to go be a foreign missionary. I want to go do this thing with you. And he said, no, I want you to stay at home. I want you to go back, find your church there. And I want you to get committed there and become a missionary in Fort Worth. That's what he's telling this dude. So sometimes he calls people to go, and just as he has that at this church, he's called Stephen and Andy Alexander. He called Corey and Jared White, He called several other people to go and be missionaries, but sometimes he also calls people to stay. And this this is from a guy from Tim Challies. I'm going to just read it verbatim because it's really good. I'm not going to act like it's mine. And so when this man was freed by Jesus, we are told that he begged Jesus to be able to go with him It's as if he said, please let me remain with you. Let me learn from you. Let me serve you. Where you go, I'll go. And this man saw Jesus for who he was and wanted Jesus more than anything. He wanted to go wherever Jesus went. Well, what has always fascinated me in Jesus' response is this man begged to be able to go with Jesus as one of his committed followers. He was willing to leave all the comforts of home and family. He was willing to suffer Jesus could have invited him along. He could have had this man as a committed disciple. I'd have thought this would have been an offer Jesus wouldn't refuse. But Jesus had another plan, a better plan. Instead of, instead of telling him, come, Jesus told him, stay. He told him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man was to have a ministry after all, but it was a ministry at home, not a ministry away. He he was not called to foreign missions, but to domestic missions, and he both heard and heeded that call. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and how everyone and everyone marveled. There could be no better missionary to these people than one of their own. This man had the advantage of knowing them, of knowing their place, of knowing their culture. This man had the advantage of being known. These people knew who and what he had been, and as he returned to live among them, they could see who and what he now was. And his task was simply to explain what had happened between times. His task was simply to explain what the Lord had done to liberate him from his demons and to liberate him from his sin. I thought that was really profound when I read that. I thought it was really helpful. Helpful for me because I believe, like, like right now, like, I, like, we're back home and this is where I want to be. And like, I feel like God has called us here. And the same is true for you. While you are here, God has called you to be a missionary here. He may one day call you somewhere else, and that's good, and follow him. But while you're here, we know this is true, that you're a missionary here in Fort Worth. If you have a history with Jesus of where he came into your heart and and rescued you from your slavery to sin and slavery to the devil, then you have a story to share. Just like this guy. And here's what he says at the end Tim Challies Christian, God may call you to foreign missions, but until then, I know for a fact he's called you to domestic missions or missions here at home. And here's what that involves Tell how much the Lord has done for you. You need to tell people about Jesus, the facts of who he is and what he's done, but be sure to also personalize it. Tell the story of what Jesus has done in you and for you. There's no better missionary to your friends, your family, your neighborhood, and your culture than you. This is the calling of every Christian, to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you let's pray. And as the band comes up, um, you just kind of think, like, I'll pray, but then you think after we finish praying about where you're at. Have you, had this, have you had this time with Jesus? Have you had this moment with Him to where He's come in and He's rescued you from what's in your heart? And so, Father, we come before you. We praise you that you're not a God who left us alone, That you're not a God who has left us not equipped to deal with the, 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 the spiritual war, the spiritual things that are happening in our world now that we, a lot of times, choose to not believe. And so we love you for that. And so I pray that through your Spirit you would work in our hearts and you would lead us to, to be people who are ever more committed to you. And that you wouldn't lead us into temptation, but you would deliver us from evil. Allow our minds to be clear, to be able, to, to, be able to, to follow you fully and think about you and turn to you. And, and when they're not, God, I pray that we would turn to you as the one who can supply for our needs. And I pray that we would turn to your word because you've given it to us. And for those of us who have the story, God, I pray that you would, you would lead us this week to be missionaries here in Fort Worth. God, to share what, the, the story that we have in you and the change that you've made within us, God, and you would lead us to share that, God, with others who need to know it, who have clouded minds and are tormented themselves and they need to know who you are. God, and so I pray that you would strengthen us for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.